You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Good day, all. My name is Bill Cohen, and I'm a member of the Toronto Centre's Board of Directors. I have the real pleasure of moderating today's panel discussion on payment systems, financial supervision, and inclusion in the digital age. I also have the distinct pleasure to welcome our two guest speakers today. Ms. Tara Rice, the head of the Committee on Payments and Markets Infrastructure, the CPMI. I've known Tara for many years when I was in Basel. And let me also welcome Governor Reza Bakir, and thank him for not only joining us for today's event, but to also recognize his support of the Toronto Center. Governor, you and the State Bank of Pakistan have been good friends of the Toronto Center, and we very much appreciate it. Uh, and Governor, um, you've been a strong leader in the central banking community, especially during the disruption we've seen that's been caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And the world has changed dramatically since the global financial crisis through the pandemic and up until today. This includes uh, an impact on financial institutions, the markets in which they operate, and the role of central banks. Traditionally, central banks focus largely on price stability. Today, there's a growing public sentiment that central banks should take a greater consideration of ESG concerns. So Governor, let me start with you. Um, and let, let me ask you, what are your views on how the role of central banks uh, has changed over time. Thank you, Bill, for this invitation to be part of this conversation. It's a real great pleasure to uh, be with you today and to be here with uh, Tara. Let me thank the Toronto Centre for its uh, support to the State Bank of Pakistan um, and its partnership. We very much appreciate our ongoing relationship. Let me also very much appreciate the very exciting, very high quality work being done by the BIS including in um, central bank digital currencies in its annual report, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Bill, I'm going to answer your question about the evolving role of central banks, um, particularly on a, in an ESG context, from a bit of a personal note. And uh, as uh, you may know, I uh, spent 18 years working for the IMF since 2000, before I quit the IMF about two years ago, and I joined the State Bank of Pakistan. In my journey in the IMF, I have seen the role of central banks evolve. The IMF is kind of a central bank to the world central banks. And when I joined in about the year 2000, when I look back, I have to say central banking then seemed quite boring. The most exciting thing going around was inflation targeting. And uh, the most exciting flavor of that for inflation targeting for emerging markets was this so-called emerging marketing light. And that's about as much as it got. And you saw the same story. To me, the first bit of innovation for central banking came during the global financial crisis after the collapse of Lehman. And uh, suddenly there was a lot of awareness of macroprudential tools that need to be complemented. And there was a growing awareness of uh, quantitative tools, again, to complement simple interest rate decisions. And we saw, I think, some innovation. But if the global financial crisis started the innovation in how central banks should think, the coronavirus pandemic, I think, gave it a tremendous boost. And when I look back, who would have thought that it would take a virus to really push central banks to innovate? Central banks around the world, I think, um, innovated. They deployed new tools. And certainly, the state bank was no exception. In a country, uh, the fifth largest country in the world, a country where poverty is quite high, a country where there's a lot of urbanization, with people living in congested places, a country where public health facilities are not the best in the world. When COVID started, we could have been hammered by it. We had all the conditions where it could have been a catastrophe. Faced with that, we had to innovate. 
And when I look back, there are three lessons that I take away from the Central Bank of Pakistan's experience. I think first, Bill, is the importance of having a wide arsenal for a central bank, a wide set of tools to combat such crises. In the case of the Central Bank of Pakistan, we made full use of a facility called a refinance facility, which is essentially a facility that allows us to lend to banks, which on lend to the private sector. Now, when we look back and look at the total support we provided during COVID, it comes to around 5% of GDP. That's purely the support from the central bank. The point I wanna make is that four fifths of that support comes from non-interest rate measures, including our refinance facilities that we rolled out. Various ways in which we were able to directly pump liquidity into the system. So that's the first point that I wanna mention. The second point that I wanna mention that for a country like Pakistan, one of the lessons that I take from the COVID experience is that the S in the ESG is very important. All of these, uh, the three letters, all of them are very important, but given where Pakistan is in its social and economic development, the S is particularly important. And I want to tell you how we try to incorporate um, the, the, the social dimension of, um, of uh, uh, for our goals. We introduced a scheme that was directly targeted at preventing layoffs. You can always argue that even interest rate cuts, even the other measures are going to support businesses and therefore prevent layoffs. But we rolled out a refinance scheme where the banks could only lend the money at concessional rates to businesses if the business is committed to not layoff workers. And we could check that either because a lot of banks were handing the salary disbursement of the businesses, or we would require affidavits from the private sector given to the bank to, to demonstrate that they would use this money for not um, laying off people. And that's one example. Another example is a refinance facility bill that we rolled out directly targeted to provide capital for those businesses seeking to build hospitals and importing ventilators or setting up medical facilities to, camp, to combat COVID. In our history, we have not used such direct social targeting of measures, but we did. And we did because we realized that we have some tools, we have some potent tools in our toolkit and we can, be creative in having a targeted use of such tools. And uh, the last point I wanna make, Bill, and the last lesson that I and the State Bank of Pakistan took away, that it has become imperative for central banks to innovate. We had to innovate during COVID. If it had been business as usual, and we had only cut interest rates and, done, and then done nothing else, yeah, I'm pretty sure that we would not, the economy of Pakistan, would not be recovering in the manner that it is right now. And as I mentioned, only about one fifth of our total liquidity injection into the system was due to reducing interest rates, which eased the cash flows, particularly of debtors. Four fifths was these new and innovative direct liquidity injection measures, which in hindsight saved a lot of bankruptcies and saved a lot of layoffs. And um, between myself and my deputy governors, during the thick of COVID, the standing instructions to all our colleagues were go and think of something new. It doesn't matter if what you think of doesn't survive our internal scrutiny, but one out of a few ideas may work. And all the measures that we rolled out built during COVID were measures that our colleagues came up with when they were given the instructions to innovate and think of new ways to support the economy during the pandemic. Thank you very much, Governor. Um, I, I, like, <laughs> I like how you start out by saying, um, you know, there was a period of time where central bank banking was boring. And I'm sure most people on this call, central bankers, supervisors, 
um, those who have oversight responsibilities, I think most people would agree that, yeah, boring's not bad, but there's nothing like, um, you know, some stress in the system and um, in a financial crisis to spur creativity and uh, ingenuity, uh, as, as you've done uh, within the State Bank of uh, Pakistan. Uh, thank you for that. Tara, let me turn to you and, and maybe extending, uh, extending this point uh, that Governor uh, Bakir has made. Um, you know, we've seen this, um, this really rapid but steady pace of te technological innovation um, over the past several years. And you know, it's not gonna end. There's gonna be, there's certainly the potential for more um, disruption. And I have to say, uh, despite my, my, my closeness, my affinity for prudential rules um, at the bank level, really what's attracting all the attention these days um, payment systems. It's at the top of policymakers' agenda. Um, the BIS and the central banking community have uh, really have taken a leading role in shaping policymakers' response to this, what some people call disruption. I like to call it uh, innovation. So here's my question. How is the digital um, innovation shaping the CPMI's agenda? What are the early lessons from these, uh, in some cases, experimental projects by central banks and financial institutions? Uh, thanks very much, Bill, and uh, it is, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here today, so thank you for the invitation. Um, so just to add to the uh, central bank is boring um, line, you know, we used to say at CPMI that we're the plumbers of the financial system, uh, which, you know, people tend to think of as kind of a boring job, so to speak, but uh, all of a sudden plumbing has become the new cool. Um, so yes, uh, payments has certainly risen to the top of the policy agenda. And it is in part because of the G20 cross-border payments program, which I'll talk a little bit about. Um, yeah, it's true that innovations and in payments are, are really gaining pace, both in the public sector and the private sector, which is causing a little bit of a tension there. Um, and as the governor noted, the pandemic has led to even greater interest in digital payment methods. If you think about we needed to shop online or um, you know, just change the way we paid or pay not, not pay with cash potentially, um, and so it's created greater interest in, in both digital payment methods, also CBDCs or central bank digital currencies and stablecoin arrangements. So these innovations could, they could offer solutions to challenges that are not so easy to address through just improving our existing systems. But many of these innovations are, they haven't been implemented broadly. Some are still in their design phase. Certainly the BIS Innovation Hub is doing a ton of innovation designs, blueprints, uh, prototypes. Uh, and, and the idea is just really to, 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 to test a lot of different types of ideas and projects um, and, and see you know, what could possibly be successful. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, in the G20 cross-border payments program, we have one focus area, one out of five focus areas that's just dedicated to examining how these payment, these new payment systems can address, could potentially address the challenges that cross-border payments face. And those three, the three particular um, areas are multilateral platforms, global stablecoin arrangements, and central bank digital currencies. So let me just review quickly the work in the first two, and I'll talk later about CBDCs. On stablecoins, um, which is building block 18 in the, in the um, cross-border payments program, I'm, I'm very excited to share that CPMI and, and IOSCO have been working very hard for about the past year to develop guidance on the application of our standards, the principles for financial market infrastructures or the PFMI to stablecoin arrangements. We'll publish a consultative report in October. Um, one thing to note, it's really important, we feel to have an internationally coordinated approach on stablecoins. Without that, we could end up with very fragmented systems. Uh, the other area I wanted to briefly raise was multilateral platforms. These are payment systems that are at the outset intended for payments between payers and payees in different jurisdic jurisdictions. Domestic payments aren't created, payment systems aren't created for cross-border payments. This is just basically focused on payees, payers in different jurisdictions. We're doing a stock take right now, multilateral platforms, both proposed and those in operation there's more than you'd think out there, um, particularly one in the Arab region that is of particular interest and recently launched. 
Um, once we finish that, we're going to assess the cost and benefits of such platforms. And then finally, let me just close with um, three early lessons that I've seen from experimental projects by central banks and financial institutions. The first is that not all projects are gonna succeed. Failure is a secret to innovation. Um, of course, it's not the objective to fail, um, but if we wanna be at the cutting edge, we need to recognize that simply not all projects are gonna succeed. But the interesting thing about this concept, Bill, is that it's really at odds with central bank culture. Central banks are quite conservative, carefully watch their budgets, and they don't seek to fail, so to speak. Um, the second lesson is that we need to think early on about possible scenarios and their outcomes with regard to these new payment systems and arrangements, even if some of those scenarios seem at the moment unlikely. So why? Because tech disruption is moving so quickly that I think we need to stay nimble and be prepared for outcomes that don't seem likely now, but which could have significant financial stability and macroeconomic implications. So we wanna be in sense, we need to try and keep ahead of the game there with our policy thinking. And then the third lesson is that international coordination and cooperation are really essential. I know we hear that a lot um, and it's easy to say, but failure to have that international coordination and cooperation, it could risk significant fragmentation of the financial system and lack of interoperability between countries in terms of not just sort of the technical payment systems, but also in policy terms. So this is one area where we're really thinking early on about in all of these newer innovations. So um, back to you, Bill, thanks. That's good, Tara, Th thank you very much. Um, plumbing may be the new cool, um, but it's also it's so incredibly important. And um, it's really, I particularly like what you had to say about the, you know, the cross-border, the, the multilateral platform approach, uh, the international cooperation, um, so important. Uh, thanks for that. Governor uh, Bakir, let, let me come back to you. And uh, again, it's, it's sort of staying within this, this theme of innovation. Under your leadership, um, Pakistan has made considerable progress in digitization of payments, especially against the backdrop, the global backdrop of um, rapidly evolving technological landscape. Last November, uh, you launched the National Payment System Strategy, the NPSS, as one of the tactical objectives um, for the State Bank of Pakistan's Vision 2020. You've also recently com confirmed that the State Bank is studying central bank-issued uh, digital currency, CBDCs. Could you elaborate on these developments? Tell us a little bit more about um, uh, your activities there. Absolutely, Bill. Uh, let me begin with a little bit of context because it is important, I think, for, uh, your, uh, for the viewers of today's session. Um, to understand where is Pakistan coming from. And the first point I wanna make is that Pakistan is a very underbanked country. The credit in percent of GDP is one of the lowest in emerging markets. In uh, financial inclusion, uh, we have a very, very long way to go. And particularly um, when you talk about the underserved areas in the system, uh, women, uh, the agricultural sector, SMEs. Um, I mentioned uh, Pakistan is uh, the world's fifth largest country by way of population. There are only about 180,000 SME accounts in the entire banking system. It's a stark illustration of uh, how much uh, we need to persevere on the agenda of financial inclusion. So this is the context of, uh, of the Pakistani financial system. Now, for us, all the work that we are doing is driven by our goals. And our goals, I think the BIS put it very nicely in its recent annual report uh, piece on uh, central bank digital currencies is to have an open, a safe, and a competitive monetary system. And we are working on all three areas and the work that we're doing on studying central bank digital currencies fits as part of that. Now, last, uh, a couple of years ago, we launched the national payment uh, strategy. I'd like to appreciate the role of the World Bank that uh, helped us with it. And uh, one of the key uh, landmarks in this strategy is the rollout of a faster payment system 
called rast. Rast is a Urdu word. It means, uh, it comes from an expression, rahiras, which means the direct way. It also has connotations of something that is simple and easy. And uh, we are extremely excited about the launch of Rast. We have already started the bulk to individual payments and are now working on the person to person payments. And our goal with Rast is that it will give a jolt to our agenda on financial inclusion. That it will also get some fintechs to work in the space of reaching out to all of these um, areas that are currently underserved uh, by our banking system. Our first goal right now, Bill, is to roll out Rast uh, very quickly and uh, in a manner where um, everybody is fully integrated and we are also doing all the cybersecurity type work that has to be a prerequisite. In parallel, we are studying uh, the pros and cons of central bank digital currencies. Pakistan is a country where certain basic things that are taken for granted in the West are a struggle, such as a, such as a literacy rate, such as a very large rural population, which struggles even to have a bank branch nearby. So it's quite difficult to think that cash is going to uh, no longer be needed in particular sections of the society. It will always be needed. But I see uh, uh, evolution where the State Bank of Pakistan continues to innovate and push. RAS is one such step. It, then study central bank digital currencies and particularly with the perspective, as I mentioned earlier, whether there is room for us to innovate there without compromising on other key objectives that we have. Um, so we are very closely studying what other central banks are doing on central bank digital currencies. Um, I myself follow the BIS publications very closely, but our number one goal right now is to um, complete the rollout of RAST and particularly uh, the payment, the person to person part of the payments, which we think will give a jolt. Some, Maybe I do want to mention a couple of other very important initiatives that we're doing, all in the spirit of digitizing payments. One is remote onboarding of customers of banks. Pakistan, uh, because of uh, not a very high penetration of bank branches and for other reasons, uh, deposit creation and getting people into the banking system has been a challenge. We are just about to launch uh, remote biometric uh, verification, which is um, an app, an API being developed with our central identity card, the database, Nadra, that will allow the five pilot banks, which are in this program, to be able to remotely onboard bank customers by being able to go to peri-urban areas, even rural areas, and using this app, which can be used on a cell phone, or an iPad type device to do the biometric. Very excited about that. We've already uh, done one initiative to remotely onboard overseas Pakistanis into our banking system. This is called the Roshan digital account. Roshan is an Urdu word, which means light or bright. And to signify that um, Pakistan's economic future, we believe is bright. We want our overseas Pakistanis to participate in our banking system through the banking system and not through the informal ways such as Hundi and Hawala. Roshan Digital Accounts made it possible for the first time for uh, us to remotely onboard overseas Pakistanis. This, the same uh, identity verification is done through video capture, through scanning of passport and identity cards, all of which is verified by our Nadra database. And in a period of about 11 months, we have been able to remotely onboard 200,000 overseas Pakistanis who have proceeded to send about $2 billion through this banking channel. Now imagine, a lot of this money may have been coming in through other informal ways. A lot of it is new money. 
And so it serves our goals of using digitization to contribute towards a brighter economic future for Pakistan. The last bit I'll mention is the work we are doing on um, regulations to make it easier for people to use um, digital forms of payments, point of sale machines, QR codes. Uh, we have recently announced that we are moving towards a single standard for QR codes uh, that we think will help. We're having a bit of a, a technical uh, difficulty at the moment um, with um, Dr. Bakir. Tara, let, let me... Um... Certainly stay on this, the subject of um, digitization and CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. Um, I'd, I'd like to um, stay on that topic. You mentioned earlier um, the importance of working together in a cross-border basis um, and how that really has the potential to increase the, the efficiency of the payment system. And that, and you were, I believe you were echoing the main conclusion of a joint report that was uh, released uh, last month by your committee, the CPMI, the BIS Innovation Hub, the IMF and the World Bank. Um, can I ask you to elaborate um, on the challenges, the opportunities that are posed by CBDCs? Um, so the challenges, the opportunities to the financial system and how they could really help us achieve more transparent, more inclusive uh, payment services, particularly cross-border payment services. Thanks, Bill. Um, many thanks. I am very happy to talk about that report. Uh, it was uh, it was an example of great collaboration. There were a number of authors, as you as you noted, the Hub, CPMI, IMF, and the World Bank, um, which really allowed us to bring in a variety of, of views and, and and sort of thinking, early thinking on international or multi-currency CBDCs. Uh, so we've said before that today's cross-border payments have four primary challenges. They're costly. They can take up to a number of days. Um, they're not very traceable or transparent, and in some cases, not widely accept, um, accessible. And so CBDCs are, are, are seen by many central banks as an opportunity to address some of these frictions. Um, so the frictions, as I noted earlier, are really rooted in differences in domestic payment systems, which were not designed to be interoperable. So we think about differences in operating hours, in technical standards, even in data requirements, makes it very difficult to have interoperable systems. But as we think about developing a brand new payment system, we can actually, if we do it right at the outset, we can start with what we like to call a clean slate. Um, so we can, we can take that international dimension into account when we design domestic CBDCs. Now the report doesn't have anything to say about whether a jurisdiction should or should not issue a CBDC. That's, that's really not up to us to determine, but rather individual jurisdictions are gonna do their cost benefit analysis, make that assessment. But rather we wanna to add to the conversation by thinking about, okay, what can we do to commit to interoperability, to, um, to foster consistent standards, to coordinate on CBDC, CBDC, CBDC designs. And when we can do that, we really can start with a system that could be at the outset interoperable. Now there's a, there's a number of different models of interoperability, so to speak. And in the report, we outline three, um, ranging from just simple basic compatibility between individual CBDCs to, if you think at one end of the spectrum, to the establishment of one single multi-CBDC system. There's no right or wrong answer. They're just different models and different ways to consider them. And as I noted, as these are you know, really under development, some of these ideas are really theoretical. We, we don't really know what the right answer is. We have a lot of work to do on this and we'll be doing more work on, um, on CBDCs. Um, so the other focus of the July report, and I'll just add one more point here, was to consider the range of macro financial imp implications um, of the international use of CBDCs. So what happens if there's widespread use of one, like one currency CBDC and there's potential currency substitution? Well, you know, it could affect other countries' monetary policy independence. It could increase, increase inflation volatility. It could undermine central banks' lender of last resort function. So while there's a lot of benefits to multi-CBDC arrangements, it also comes with a number of considerations that we need to um, think of at the outset. So the main point of the report is really to, to outline that careful design of CBDCs could really help mitigate potentially 
like adverse macro impl uh, financial implications. It could start with a clean slate, um, but we need to, again, start with that coordinated approach at the global level so that we can meet the needs of all countries and that we can um, adopt these yeah, you know, in a wide um, manner. Let me, let me just add, if I may, I have a question for the governor because I found all of the innovation going on in Pakistan is really interesting. I and mean, you guys are really doing a lot of fascinating, fascinating things. Um, and, I, you know, no central bank has an unlimited budget. There's trade-offs um, everywhere. And so I'm just curious how you're thinking about the trade-offs between establishing new systems and thinking about CBDC versus, for example, um, rolling out your fast payment system. Sarah, you've hit the nail on the head. This is the uh, trade-offs we are uh, running against every single day. I'm keenly being uh, reminded of uh, I, the first concept that I learned in economics, which is about uh, constraints and um, you know having a constrained objective function. And uh, we are hitting against these constraints every day. That's why I mentioned that in terms of our prioritization, the number one goal is uh, to roll out uh, RAST successfully. And uh, COVID to begin with set us back because of the problems with the vendors who could not visit Pakistan uh, and the associated delays in the shipment of some of the hardware that was needed. In parallel, we are uh, studying um, CBDCs. And at this stage, a lot of the work on CBDCs is uh, conversations, targeted conversations with, um, with a few central banks around the world. I have to appreciate um, some very good conversations with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Um, I want to appreciate the good work being done by the BIS. And then a few other contacts that we have around the world. Um, uh, related point I want to make is uh, human resources. For a central bank, you know, we need, um, uh, we need officers that are not only savvy or knowledgeable about the payment systems aspect of it, for instance, uh, officers working in commercial banks, but we need officers with the central bank tilt. And uh, despite what I said at the beginning, officers uh, and colleagues and staff who are gonna put their head down and feel excited in doing boring things because central banking remains uh, what to some would be boring, say to commercial bankers, it may appear boring, but the perspective number one has to be that of safety and has to be to ensure that the trust element of uh, a central bank never ever is compromised. So also uh, looking for the right staff is a challenge. I want to share that um, we have uh, within the organization of the central bank elevated the structure of um, the digital financial services part of the state bank and created additional senior level positions as well as new positions across the whole chain. And uh, we are in the market to recruit people, but getting people with the right balance, the knowledge, the technical knowledge, but also a central bank perspective of keeping your head down. You're never in the limelight, but making sure that whatever you do, the system doesn't fail the trust of the public. Finding such people is also not easy. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Tara, thanks uh, for that question, Governor Bakir. It was a, it was a good one. Um, I've got, I could stay here all day and ask uh, both of you questions. This is really um, a fascinating topic, set of topics. Um, and given your positions, uh, this it's a, feedback is fascinating. But we do have quite a number of people on this uh, on this webinar, and um, a lot of questions are starting to come in. There, there are two in particular that have caught my eye, uh, and this is you know any discussion about financial um, the technological innovation. Um, we hear a lot about cybersecurity, um, and this is of course no new issue. Um, there have been a number of instances, ongoing instances. Um, about uh, breaches, 
Um, can, can I ask either one of you? Uh, so that, that's one issue, the cybersecurity issue. The other is about um, crypto assets. Some people call them cryptocurrencies. I know the, the BIS um, continues to, to refer to them as crypto assets because they don't meet the true definition of currency. Um, Tara, let me, if I may, let me start with you. Is can you share your views on, um, you know, from a um, a payment and market infrastructure perspective? When I say uh, when I point to cybersecurity or when I mention um, crypto assets, what comes to mind? What would you like to share? Two very different topics, both starting with the same letter. <laughs> <laughs> So, so cyber is, uh, it's, it's really a critical, it's a cornerstone to, to all of the work that we do in CPMI and in central banking, you know, any, any payment system. Um, we, we do have a work program um, in cybersecurity. It's, um, you know, it's one of the areas which we call just like as addressing and monitoring those, those always present risks. Right, this isn't going to go away. It's not going to be a, a work program that we're going to work on for a little while and let it, and you know, let it go or finish it up. Um, we currently have a, a group that is doing three different reports. Um, it's working with industry to assess um, cybersecurity in a number of different elements. Um, and we continue to monitor and share information among CPMI members. So if there's any, um, you know, breaches or incidences, we do share that among the central bank community. Um, because we can all learn from it. You know, one of the biggest um, events over the last several years was the Bangladesh bank fraud. And what resulted from that was actually a multi-year, uh, multi-dimensional work program trying to improve um, wholesale payments endpoint security. Now that's a mouthful. <laughs> but um, it, it's not just, so when you think about it, you're talking about endpoints, it means you need to make sure that both of those ends are secure. Um, we can do that as CPMI members. We've got our, you know, we've got our standards or guidance and our policy and our guidelines now. But if one endpoint is secure and the other is not, then you still have an opportunity or, or you know, an, an option for a breach there. So we're also trying to reach out to non-CPMI members um, to, to share this information. So like I said, it's super important. It's an ongoing um, priority for us and we'll continue to, um, to, to move forward on that. We also in 2016 published some cyber guidance that has um, become a, a standard, I should say, in the field and that it continues to be um, cited and, and referenced. On crypto assets, um, so I've talked a lot on cyber, I won't talk much on crypto. I don't see crypto as a means of payment um, and I'm really struggling in the policy space to think about how we separate crypto from uh, stable coins where we have stable coins that are actually backed by a stable asset. And that, by the way, I don't think that stable coins backed by crypto are stable, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, so, so in the policy space, we've got a lot of thinking to do here where we wanna draw that regulatory perimeter um, and then how we consider a means of payments, um, you know, whether, whether that crypto or where that, that line is. Um, so let me stop there and turn back to you, Bill. Thank you, Tara. Um, Governor, can, can I ask your perspective? Um, you know, Tara mentioned the Bangladesh, Bank, uh, Bangladesh um, affair of a couple of years ago. This has got to be the, the cyber threat, the cybersecurity threat has to be a, a major issue for you and the State Bank of Pakistan. What are you doing um, about it? How do you address this? I could not agree more with uh, what Tara shared. And thank you, Bill, for raising this. I get this question all the time when I talk about digitization that, uh, Governor, if you're doing all of these things, aren't you going to expose us to, um, to cyber risks? And my answer is uh, uh, it always begins with the following observation that uh, cyber risks are going to be with us. And if anything, they will become more pronounced as we go towards digitization. It is a fact. Therefore, we have to put in more resources towards that. And it is a shared goal between the regulator as well as the end user. Cyber risks take all forms uh, from a very plain vanilla 
uh, form where you get text messages on your cell phone telling you that your ATM card has been blocked. You have to call this number uh, immediately to get it unblocked. We are right now running dedicated TV commercials with some famous um, uh, TV personalities to bring awareness to this issue in a very, very basic mundane manner that um, something like this is a, is, a, is a red light, is an alarm. Then giving these messages that a regulator will never ask you, call you and ask you for your ID card number or your bank account number. So these are sort of some very, very simple examples of um, the efforts that we are doing to try to create an awareness. And the reason this is important is because it takes two ends. The customer awareness part of it, that responsibility is critically important. And when I mentioned about a deliberate posture towards studying CBDCs, i.e. taking our time, I worry about the fact that a lot of people not being very literate, if they are operating digital modes of payments and accounts, will they be able to exercise the amount of um, uh, care and precautions that somebody who's a lot more educated and literate may be able to do so? So my first point um, is about the shared aspect of this, that uh, we have to educate the customers, the end users, as much as we have to invest of our own accord in strengthening the systems. I wanna make two other points. Pakistan in a way is uh, a bit fortunate that uh, because of being in an FATF action plan, uh, we have been in the greatest and because of having a plan with the Asia Pacific group um, through our mutual evaluation report, we have had to do a tremendous amount of work in strengthening the control and risk functions of banks and associated regulations from the central bank. Where this has helped us in the cybersecurity agenda is the emphasis that this has placed in the control, risk, and cyber parts of commercial banks, as well as the resources that we have invested in it, Bill, as well as the fact that because we know we are going to be questioned by the assessors of the FATF and, uh, and, and APG, the amount of awareness and uh, work that we've already had to do. So that's been a good thing of uh, something that otherwise you know, has been a challenge for Pakistan to, um, to, uh, to uh, deal with all the work that was uh, required as part of uh, these action plans. The second point I want to make has to do with, uh, with uh, you know, some standard operating procedures that we are uh, deploying. I mentioned remote onboarding of customers. Now, you know, onboarding account holders is great for financial inclusion. But the threat, um, whether it's AML or cybersecurity, sometimes also starts from onboarding the wrong type of customer or having a bank doing the onboarding, which the systems of which are not very strong. So when we launched Russian digital accounts for overseas Pakistanis, we did not allow all commercial banks in Pakistan to participate in that initiative. Banks, if they wanted to participate first, had to demonstrate that their technological systems are advanced enough that we would allow them to participate in this initiative. And uh, out of um, all the banks in Pakistan, we currently have only 12 banks offering banking services to overseas Pakistanis because these are the banks whose IT systems in our assessment uh, are of a level that where we consider that um, of all the banks, they are better addressing cybersecurity risks than others. Similarly, when I mentioned remote onboarding of customers locally in Pakistan through the API, through our Nadra database, we have five pilot banks right now. And again, these are banks whose existing IT systems are one, which our regulators in the cyber part of our regulatory department have assessed 
to have the security features which uh, would be needed. So I wanted to illustrate just with a few examples uh, what we are already doing, the fact that through our FATF and um, APG work, we've already, you know, I feel had been able to bring a lot of attention to these aspects. And um, the first point that I mentioned about cyber being a shared responsibility between the regulator at the banks and the end customer and the role of public awareness um, as being critical to that. Yeah, that's, no, I appreciate that. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of, um, from a supervisory and a central banking perspective, um, effective communications, uh, raising awareness, um, and, that's, and that's really the starting point. Um, if you don't mind, just only because you mentioned um, AML, uh, the Financial Action Task Force, we've had a couple of questions that came in um, on, on that matter, on the AML issue. Can you say a few words about the extent yeah. to which the state bank is uh, making use of distri distributed ledger technology, blockchain technology to address AML um, KYC concerns? Uh, can I maybe start a bit uh, broadly first, because I want to put this in context. Um, Pakistan um, has had an action plan from FATF um, for some time now. And it was a 27-point plan. And um, as you may know, when the assessors come, they put you in one of three categories, whether a particular recommendation has uh, been fully met, partially met, or uh, not met. And right now, uh, out of the 27, 26 have been fully met. And one, one out of 27 is partially met. And that is simply... Um, what I hope your viewers will take away a statement about the extent of our commitment to this agenda. And um, in fact, in some other cases that I'm aware of when there are FATF action plans, when you have completed so many, um, you are already considered having moved out of the gray list, um, but we are determined that um, to take off the last box as well. Um, uh, Bill, concurrently, we have uh, an agenda with the Asia-Pacific group that's largely focused on AML. And um, a lot of these things uh, don't have as much to do with distributed ledger technology as much with a lot more um, plain vanilla types of uh, uh, you know, money laundering risks. So I'll just give you some examples. In Pakistan, real estate investments has been a typical way in which money is laundered because um, you are able to, uh, to basically uh, use the proceeds from that uh, to bring them into the banking system. Uh, so a lot of the emphasis of our work is on such plain vanilla things, um, you know, rather than what distributed ledger technology, which most even, most is not as much of an issue as some Sort of some very basic things. Got it. Thank you very much. Um, Bill, could I add just one comment to, to that? Um, Thanks, Sarah. So we did. We wrote a research paper last year. It's a, it's a quarterly review article. It came out in March 2020, and it actually um, it supports what Governor Bakir just said about the importance of these FATF action plans, the importance of these mutual uh, reviews. So what we did in in this paper is that we looked at the SWIFT correspondent banking data back, back 11 years, and we put that data to, um, to the gray list, as the governor said, to the FATF um, list of, of countries that needed to improve their AML CFT compliance. We also um, put in some indicators for um, countries that could be um, seen as tax havens. Um, and we, we used a number of different variables to kind of pick out what countries needed to improve, essentially improve their compliance regime. What, it, what was really interesting um, that was our finding that if you were not um, high on the list of good compliance, <laughs> that you lost more correspondent banking relationships, so the, you know, the cross-country relationships, than other countries, all else equal. What's Equally interesting about our results was that 
if you um, if you were on the list for just a short amount of time, if you got yourself off the list by improving your compliance regimes, you were able to um, to um, re um, reestablish those correspondent banking relationships. So, in other words, one of the takeaways I I have um, taken from that is, and I see the governor would like to um, add something. One of the takeaways is that these these regimes that we have, I know that they are costly and I know that there are downsides, but there are some intended consequences of that. And that is that the countries that need to improve their compliance regimes do have that motivation to do so. I'll stop there. Interesting. Um, Governor, please, yes. Yeah, um, thank you, Tara, uh, for making that point. And it's glad to see that um, some of um, our experience fits in with the international experience that you have pointed out. Can I just point out some uh, issues which I could call collateral damage uh, associated with the work that we are committed to do on um, the FATF action plan and the AML work. Um, and that is not to say that that undermines in any way our commitment, but just for us to be collectively conscious of this and things that you may not be aware of. Um, one of our big agendas in Pakistan is to promote the financial inclusion of women, to reduce the gender gap that exists in banking services. And uh, there was an astonishing point that um, came out. Um, and this is an example of um, sort of uh, where we have to pay particular attention in our work on AML and CFT. It turned out that um, a lot of the bad guys uh, who were using the banking system for purposes, uh, either terrorism, financing of terrorism, or money laundering, often would open a bank account in the name of their wife mm. to hide their own identity. Now, when we crack down as a regulator on banks, and banks discover that a lot of these accounts tended to be so-called housewife accounts. Guess what they have done? They have now made it very difficult for a housewife or a woman who perhaps may not have a job to go and open a bank account. And um, it's running into now our goal of promoting financial inclusion for women. It's an illustration of things that may, we may not sort of think of. Another example I wanna give is a lot of the challenges related to the work on financing, you know, to, to counter the financing of terrorism and curtailing money laundering has to do with cross-border payments, where we um, have um, uh, required our commercial banks to become extremely careful in uh, having in place the technology to check when transactions trigger certain in internal red flags. One uh, downside of that is um, e-commerce. It's become very hard. I get this feedback as uh, people saying to me, Governor, great that you've done and the country is doing all this work to get us off the gray list. But you know, it's become extremely hard to send money in or out of Pakistan, even for normal things because banks will typically ask so many questions and often they will reject inward the remittances as well. A simple example, a simple example. Um, it so happened that a lot of the uh, problem accounts we had were for these so-called non-profit organizations or non-government organizations. Because some of these were funding uh, criminal or terrorist activities. But when we clamped down on this sector, a lot of good um, NGOs or nonprofit organizations got roped in as well. And banks, because they are so afraid of the fines that we are imposing as a regulator when they end up accepting an inward remittance where they haven't done the due diligence on the receiving entity, are also preventing money to reach good causes. Um, one case is convent, um, you know, we have a lot of schools in Pakistan, which are trusts, charities, 
And um, I remember in particular one case that came to my level because the person happened to know me and said that, look, you know, I used to be able to send money to the convent of Jesus and Mary, a very, very well-known school in Lahore, Pakistan. Uh, and as you may know, um, because of our history uh, with, um, you know, uh, when uh, Pakistan was colonized by the UK, a lot of the schools from that time uh, are providing tremendously valuable educational services. But this school that I know personally, it's been around for eons, um, you know, also could not get inward remittances because the officers in the banks were so now uh, nervous about receiving inward remittances. So I just wanted to point out that in the, uh, you know, in the efforts that we remain fully committed to, and I'm sure this goes for many other countries as well, we as regulators have tried to have an obligation to try to figure out how the good does not get roped in with you know the measures that are designed to curtail the bad. Governor, um, I appreciate you you raising this issue of financial inclusion. This is this is something I was going to ask you, and I I know you personally have um, have uh, spoken publicly about the issue, and I know the State Bank of Pakistan uh, has been quite active in promoting financial inclusion. So, th thank you very much for for um, for raising that. Um, I'm acutely conscious of time, um, and I, I wish we could um, go on um, far longer than, than we've got scheduled. Um, Tara, let me ask uh, one final question, Tara, to you. Um, despite all the work that's been done to promote, uh, to improve the efficiency of cross-border payments, um, more work still is, um, is needed. Any final words of advice or any final thoughts about what central bankers, what supervisors could do to address these shortcomings? All right, we have two minutes. How about if I take one <laughs> and I turn back to the governor for the last minute? Yeah. Um, I would say simply, look, we've got, we've got a very, very comprehensive program. We've got 19 building blocks over five focus areas. We hadn't made a lot of progress on improving cross-border payments before because we tried to tackle this topic by topic. This G20 cross-border payments agenda is enormous. It's comprehensive. It's, it's job security for me, <laughs> joking aside. Um, but, but what we've done in the first year is stock takes and what we like to call ground laying. Um, now it's time to build. And the building part is the hard part. Um, as we've heard from the governor with all the initiatives going on in these central banks, this is now concrete actions and heavy work um, costing you know, not just resources in terms of money, but also people's time. So my point, you know, where I where I really want to focus uh, our attention is we have to keep up the momentum, both the private sector and the public sector. Um, without this commitment, this political commitment coming from the top, coming from the governors, to keep those resources flowing, so to speak, to improve payments, we're just not going to have the success that we seek. Um, so that's my last word, and let me turn it over. Uh, Tara, thank you very much, and and. For those who would like to find out more about um, uh, CPMI's work uh, and, and a lot of the work that's being done in this, spa in this space, um, they, they could visit bis.org uh, and look at uh, CPMI's um, webpage. Governor, your, Just your, your, one, your uh, final thoughts. Yeah, final thoughts. Look, I want to illustrate the exciting opportunity that digitization presents with a couple of numbers. And I want to illustrate how digitization and our agenda ultimately, and right now in big part, is really about pushing financial inclusion. In Pakistan right now, there are about 82 million unique accounts. In Pakistan right now, there are 182 million mobile subscribers. There are 100 million people out there that have a mobile phone, but don't have a bank account. To us, this is an opportunity about using technology and mobile users is just one example of advancing our financial inclusion agenda, but it gets better. A big part of our agenda is also to reduce the gender gap. Of these 
accounts that I mentioned, 82 million, only one fourth are accounts held by women. But when you look at mobile subscribers, about 40% of those mobile subscribers are women. So when we use digitization for banking purposes, we hit both goals. We improve and raise the use of the banking system for transactions. And we proportionally are able to reach out more to the underserved segments of our society. And in this example, I gave women. So that's just an example of why we are so excited in Pakistan about the work we are doing on digital financial services. And thank you, Rady Bill, and thank you, Tara. It was extremely useful and informative to be part of this panel. Thank you, Governor. Um, that's a, uh, it, it's a, an excellent way to conclude this session. Again, I wish we had more time. This has been very interesting. Let, let me thank both of you, Tara and uh, Dr. Bakia, um, on behalf of the Toronto Center, but also personally, thank you very much for your time today, uh, your participation in this. I thought it was fascinating uh, and, and really educational. So thank you. Uh, thank you both. And thank you all for participating. Thank you bye. and bye-bye. See you again. Thank you.